Section 19 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 19. Up the Thames. It is a good method of teaching a man how imperfectly cosmopolitan he is, to show him his country's flag occupying a position of dishonor in a foreign land. But, in truth, the whole system of a people, crowing over its military triumphs, had far better be dispensed with, both on account of the ill blood that it helps to keep fermenting among the nations, and because it operates as an accumulative inducement to future generations, to aim at a kind of glory, the gain of which has generally proved more ruinous than its loss. I heartily wish that every trophy of victory might crumble away, and that every reminiscence or tradition of a hero, from the beginning of the world to this day, could pass out of all men's memories at once and forever. I might feel very differently, to be sure, if we northerners had anything especially valuable to lose by the fading of those illuminated names. I gave the pensioner— but I am afraid there might have been a little affectation in it, a magnificent guerdon of all the silver I had in my pocket, to requite him for having unintentionally stirred up my patriotic susceptibilities. He was a meek-looking, kindly old man, with a humble freedom and affability of manner that made it pleasant to converse with him. Old soldiers, I know not why, seem to be more accostable than old sailors." one is apt to hear a growl beneath the smoothest courtesy of the latter. The mild veteran, with his peaceful voice and gentle reverend aspect, told me that he had fought at a cannon all through the Battle of Waterloo, and escaped unhurt. He had now been in the hospital four or five years, and was married, but necessarily underwent a separation from his wife, who lived outside of the gates. To my inquiry whether his fellow pensioners were comfortable and happy, he answered with great alacrity, "'Oh, yes, sir,' qualifying his evidence, after a moment's consideration, by saying in an undertone, "'There are some people, your honour knows, who could not be comfortable anywhere.' I did know it, and fear that the system of Chelsea Hospital— allows too little of that wholesome care and regulation of their own occupations and interests which might assuage the sting of life to those naturally uncomfortable individuals by giving them something external to think about. But my old friend here was happy in the hospital, and by this time very likely is happy in heaven, in spite of the bloodshed that he may have caused by touching off a cannon at Waterloo." Crossing Battersea Bridge, in the neighborhood of Chelsea, I remember seeing a distant gleam of the Crystal Palace, glimmering afar in the afternoon sunshine, like an imaginary structure, an air-castle by chance descended upon earth, and resting there one instant before it vanished, as we sometimes see a soap-bubble touch unharmed on the carpet, a thing of only momentary visibility and no substance, destined to be overburdened and crushed down by the first cloud-shadow that might fall upon that spot. Even as I looked, it disappeared. 
Shall I attempt a picture of this exhalation of modern ingenuity? Or what else shall I try to paint? Everything in London and its vicinity has been depicted innumerable times, but never once translated into intelligible images. It is an old, old story, never yet told, nor to be told. While writing these reminiscences, I am continually impressed with the futility of the effort to give any creative truth to ink sketch, so that it might produce such pictures in the reader's mind as would cause the original scenes to appear familiar when afterwards beheld. Nor have other writers often been more successful in representing definite objects prophetically to my own mind. In truth, I believe that the chief delight and advantage of this kind of literature is not for any real information that it supplies to untraveled people, but for reviving the recollections and reawakening the emotions of persons already acquainted with the scenes described. Thus I found an exquisite pleasure the other day in reading Mr. Tuckerman's Month in England, fine example of the way in which a refined and cultivated American looks at the old country, the things that he naturally seeks there, and the modes of feeling and reflection which they excite. Correct outlines avail little or nothing, though truth of coloring may be somewhat more efficacious. Impressions, however, states of mind produced by interesting and remarkable objects, these, if truthfully and vividly recorded, may work a genuine effect, and, though but the result of what we see, go further towards representing the actual scene than any direct effort to paint it. Give the emotions that cluster about it, and, without being able to analyze the spell by which it is summoned up, you get something like a simulacre of the object in the midst of them. From some of the above reflections I draw the comfortable inference that, the longer and better known a thing may be, so much the more eligible it is as the subject of a descriptive sketch. On a Sunday afternoon I passed through a side entrance in the time-blackened wall of a place of worship, and found myself among a congregation assembled in one of the transepts and the immediately contiguous portion of the nave. It was a vast old edifice, spacious enough within the extent covered by its pillared roof and overspread by its stone pavement, to accommodate the whole of church-going London, and with a far wider and loftier concave than any human power of lungs could fill with audible prayer. Oaken benches were arranged in the transept, on one of which I seated myself, and joined, as well as I knew how, in the sacred business that was going forward. But when it came to the sermon, the voice of the preacher was puny, and so were his thoughts, and both seemed impertinent at such a time and place, where he and all of us were bodily included within a sublime act of religion, which could be seen above and around us, and felt beneath our feet. The structure itself was the worship of the devout men of long ago, miraculously preserved in stone, without losing an atom of its fragrance and fervor. It was a kind of anthem strain that they had sung and poured out of the organ in centuries gone by, and being so grand and sweet, the divine benevolence had willed it to be prolonged for the behoof of auditors unborn. 
I therefore came to the conclusion that, in my individual case, it would be better and more reverent to let my eyes wander about the edifice than to fasten them and my thoughts on the evidently uninspired mortal who was venturing, and felt it no venture at all, to speak here above his breath. The interior of Westminster Abbey, for the reader recognized it no doubt the moment we entered, is built of rich brown stone, and the whole of it, the lofty roof, the tall clustered pillars, and the pointed arches, appears to be in consummate repair. At all points where decay has laid its finger, the structure is clamped with iron or otherwise carefully protected, and being thus watched over, whether as a place of ancient sanctity, a noble specimen of Gothic art, or an object of national interest and pride, it may reasonably be expected to survive for as many ages as have passed over it already. It was sweet to feel its venerable quietude, its long-enduring peace, and yet to observe how kindly and even cheerfully it received the sunshine of to-day, which fell from the great windows into the fretted aisles and arches that laid aside somewhat of their aged gloom to welcome it. Sunshine always seems friendly to old abbeys, churches, and castles, kissing them, as it were, with a more affectionate, though still reverential familiarity, than it accords to edifices of later date. A square of golden light lay on the sombre pavement of the nave afar off, falling through the grand western entrance, and folding leaves of which were wide open, and afforded glimpses of people passing to and fro in the outer world, while we sat dimly enveloped in the solemnity of antique devotion. In the south transept, separated from us by the full breadth of the minster, there were painted glass windows of which the uppermost appeared to be a great orb of many-coloured radiance, being, indeed, a cluster of saints and angels, whose glorified bodies formed the rays of an aureole emanating from a cross in the midst. These windows are modern, but combine softness with wonderful brilliancy of effect. Through the pillars and arches, I saw that the walls in that distant region of the edifice were almost wholly encrusted with marble, now grown yellow with time, no blank unlettered slabs, but memorials of such men as their respective generations deemed wisest and bravest. Some of them were commemorated merely by inscriptions on mural tablets, others by sculptured bas-reliefs, others, once famous, but now forgotten generals or admirals these, by ponderous tombs that aspired towards the roof of the aisle, or partly curtained the immense arch of a window. These mountains of marble were peopled with the sisterhood of allegory, winged trumpeters, and classic figures in full-bottomed wigs, but it was strange to observe how the old abbey melted all such absurdities into the breadth of its own grandeur, even magnifying itself by what would elsewhere have been ridiculous. Methinks it is the test of Gothic sublimity to overpower the ridiculous without deigning to hide it, and these grotesque monuments of the last century answer a similar purpose with the grinning faces which the old architects scattered among their most solemn conceptions. 
From these distant wanderings, it was my first visit to Westminster Abbey, and I would gladly have taken it all in at a glance. My eyes came back and began to investigate what was immediately about me in the transept. Close at my elbow was the pedestal of Canning's statue. Next beyond it was a massive tomb, on the spacious tablet of which reposed the full-length figures of a marble lord and lady, whom an inscription announced to be the Duke and Duchess of Newcastle, the historic Duke of Charles I's time, and the fantastic Duchess, traditionally remembered by her poems and plays. She was of a family, as the record on her tomb proudly informed us, of which all the brothers had been valiant and all the sisters virtuous. A recent statue of Sir John Malcolm, the new marble as white as snow, held the next place, and nearby was a mural monument and a bust of Sir Peter Warren. The round visage of this old British admiral has a certain interest for a New Englander, because it was by no merit of his own, though he took care to assume it as such, but by the valor and warlike enterprise of our colonial forefathers, especially the stout men of Massachusetts, that he won rank and renown, and a tomb in Westminster Abbey. Lord Mansfield, a huge mass of marble done into the guise of a judicial gown and wig, with a stern face in the midst of the latter, sat on the other side of the transept, and on the pedestal beside him was a figure of justice holding forth, instead of the customary grocer's scales, an actual pair of brass steel-yards. It is an ancient and classic instrument, undoubtedly, but I had supposed that Portia, when Shylock's pound of flesh was to be weighed, was the only judge that ever really called for it in a court of justice. Pitt and Fox were in the same distinguished company, and John Kemble, in Roman costume, stood not far off, but strangely shorn of the dignity that is said to have enveloped him like a mantle in his lifetime. Perhaps the evanescent majesty of the stage is incompatible with the long endurance of marble and the solemn reality of the tomb, though, on the other hand, almost every illustrious personage here represented has been invested with more or less of stage trickery by his sculptor. In truth, the artist, unless there be a divine efficacy in his touch, making evident a heretofore hidden dignity in the actual form, feels it, an imperious law to remove his subject as far from the aspect of ordinary life as may be possible without sacrificing every trace of resemblance. The absurd effect of the contrary course is very remarkable in the statue of Mr. Wilberforce, whose actual self, save for the lack of color, I seemed to behold seated just across the aisle. This excellent man appears to have sunk himself into a sitting posture, with a thin leg crossed over his knee, a book in one hand, and a finger of the other under his chin, I believe, or applied to the side of his nose or to some equally familiar purpose, while his exceedingly homely and wrinkled face, held a little on one side, twinkles at you with the shrewdest complacency, as if he were looking right into your eyes, 
and twigged something there which you had half a mind to conceal from him. He keeps this look so pertinaciously that you feel it to be insufferably impertinent, and bethink yourself what common ground there may be between yourself and a stone image, enabling you to resent it. I have no doubt that the statue is as like Mr. Wilberforce as one pea to another, and you might fancy that at some ordinary moment, when he least expected it, and before he had time to smooth away his knowing complication of wrinkles, he had seen the gorgon's head, and whitened into marble, not only his personal self but his coat and small clothes, down to a button and the minutest crease of the cloth. The ludicrous result marks the impropriety of bestowing the age-long duration of marble upon small, characteristic individualities, such as might come within the province of waxen imagery. The sculptor should give permanence to the figure of a great man in his mood of broad and grand composure, which would obliterate all mean peculiarities, for, if the original were unaccustomed to such a mood, or if his features were incapable of assuming the guise, it seems questionable whether he could really have been entitled to a marble immortality. In point of fact, however, the English face and form are seldom statuesque, however illustrious the individual. It ill becomes me, perhaps, to have lapsed into this mood of half-jocose criticism in describing my first visit to Westminster Abbey, a spot which I had dreamed about more reverentially from my childhood upward than any other in the world, and which I then beheld, and now look back upon, with profound gratitude to the men who built it, and a kindly interest, I may add, in the humblest personage that has contributed his little all to its impressiveness, by depositing his dust or his memory there. But it is a characteristic of this grand edifice that it permits you to smile as freely under the roof of its central nave as if you stood beneath the yet grander canopy of heaven. Break into laughter if you feel inclined, provided the vergers do not hear it echoing among the arches. In an ordinary church you would keep your countenance for fear of disturbing the sanctities or proprieties of the place, but you need leave no honest and decorous portion of your human nature outside of these benign and truly hospitable walls. Their mild awfulness will take care of itself. Thus it does no harm to the general impression when you come to be sensible that many of the monuments are ridiculous and commemorate a mob of people who are mostly forgotten in their graves and few of whom ever deserved any better boon from posterity. You acknowledge the force of Sir Godfrey Kneller's objection to being buried in Westminster Abbey, because they do bury fools there. Nevertheless, these grotesque carvings of marble, that break out in dingy white blotches on the old freestone of the interior walls, have come there by as natural a process as might cause mosses and ivy to cluster about the external edifice, for they are the historical and biographical record of each successive age, written with its own hand, and all the truer for the inevitable mistakes, and none the less solemn for the occasional absurdity. 
though you entered the abbey expecting to see the tombs only of the illustrious, you are content at last to read many names, both in literature and history, that have now lost the reverence of mankind, if indeed they ever really possessed it. Let these men rest in peace. Even if you miss a name or two that you hoped to find there, they may well be spared. It matters little a few more or less, or whether Westminster Abbey contains or lacks any one man's grave, so long as the centuries, each with the crowd of personages that it deemed memorable, have chosen it as their place of honored sepulture, and laid themselves down under its pavement. The inscriptions and devices on the walls are rich with evidences of the fluctuating tastes, fashions, manners, opinions, prejudices, follies, wisdoms of the past, and thus they combine into a more truthful memorial of their dead times than any individual epitaph-maker ever meant to write. When the services were over, many of the audience seemed inclined to linger in the nave, or wander away among the mysterious aisles. For there is nothing in this world so fascinating as a Gothic minster, which always invites you deeper and deeper into its heart, both by vast revelations and shadowy concealments. Through the open-work screen that divides the nave from the chancel and choir, we could discern the gleam of a marvellous window, but were debarred from entrance into that more sacred precinct of the abbey by the vergers. These vigilant officials, doing their duty all the more strenuously because no fees could be exacted from Sunday visitors, flourished their staves and drove us towards the grand entrance like a flock of sheep. Lingering through one of the aisles, I happened to look down and found my foot upon a stone inscribed with this familiar exclamation, O rare Ben Johnson! And I remembered the story of stout old Ben's burial in that spot, standing upright, not, I presume, on account of any unseemly reluctance on his part to lie down in the dust like other men, but because standing-room was all that could be reasonably be demanded for a poet among the slumberous notabilities of his age. It made me weary to think of it. Such a prodigious length of time to keep one's feet. Apart from the honor of the thing, it would certainly have been far better for Ben to stretch himself at ease in some country churchyard. To this day, however, I fancy that there is a contemptuous alloy mixed up with the admiration which the higher classes of English society profess for their literary men. Another day, in truth many other days, I sought out Poet's Corner, and found a signboard and a pointed finger directing the visitor to it, on the corner-house of a little lane leading towards the rear of the abbey. The entrance is at the southeastern end of the south transept, and it is used, on ordinary occasions, as the only free mode of access to the building. It is no spacious arch, but a small, lowly door, passing through which, and pushing aside an inner screen that partly keeps out an exceedingly chill wind, you find yourself in a dim nook of the abbey, with the busts of poets gazing at you from the otherwise bare stonework of the walls. Great poets, too, for Ben Jonson is right behind the door, and Spencer's tablet is next, and Butler's on the same side of the transept, and Milton's, 
whose bust you know at once by its resemblance to one of his portraits, though older, more wrinkled, and sadder than that, is close by, and a profile medallion of grey beneath it. A window high aloft sheds down a dusky daylight on these and many other sculptured marbles, now as yellow as old parchment, that cover the three walls of the nook up to an elevation of about twenty feet above the pavement. It seemed to me that I had always been familiar with the spot. Enjoying a humble intimacy, and how much of my life had else been a dreary solitude, with many of its inhabitants, I could not feel myself a stranger there. It was delightful to be among them. There was a genial awe, mingled with a sense of kind and friendly presences about me, and I was glad, moreover, at finding so many of them there together, in fit companionship, mutually recognized and duly honored, all reconciled now, whatever distant generations, whatever personal hostility or other miserable impediment had divided them far asunder while they lived. I have never felt a similar interest in any other tombstones, nor have I ever been deeply moved by the imaginary presence of other famous dead people. A poet's ghost is the only one that survives for his fellow mortals after his bones are in the dust, and be not ghostly, but cherishing many hearts with his own warmth in the chillest atmosphere of life. What other fame is worth aspiring for? Or, let me speak it more boldly, what other long-enduring fame can exist? We neither remember nor care anything for the past, except as the poet has made it intelligibly noble and sublime to our comprehension. The shades of the mighty have no substance. They flit ineffectually about the darkened stage, where they performed their momentary parts, save when the poet has thrown his own creative soul into them, and imparted a more vivid life than ever they were able to manifest to mankind while they dwelt in the body. And therefore, though he cunningly disguises himself in their armor, their robes of state or kingly purple, it is not the statesman, the warrior, or the monarch that survives, but the despised poet, whom they may have fed with their crumbs, and to whom they owe all that they now are or have, a name. In the foregoing paragraph, I seem to have been betrayed into a flight above or beyond the customary level that best agrees with me, but it represents fairly enough the emotions with which I passed from poet's corner into the chapels, which contain the sepulchres of kings and great people. They are magnificent even now, and must have been inconceivably so when the marble slabs and pillars wore their new polish and the statues retained the brilliant colors with which they were originally painted, and the shrines their rich gilding, of which the sunlight still shows a glimmer or a streak, though the sunbeam itself looks tarnished with antique dust. Yet this recondite portion of the abbey presents few memorials of personages whom we care to remember. The shrine of Edward the Confessor has a certain interest, because it was so long held in religious reverence, and because the very dust that settled upon it was formerly worth gold. The helmet and war-saddle of Henry V, worn at Agincourt, and now suspended above his tomb, are memorable objects, but more for Shakespeare's sake than the victor's own. Rank has been the general passport to admission here. 
Noble and regal dust is as cheap as dirt under the pavement. I am glad to recollect, indeed, and it is too characteristic of the right English spirit not to be mentioned, one or two gigantic statues of great mechanicians, who contributed largely to the material welfare of England, sitting familiarly in their marble chairs among forgotten kings and queens. Otherwise the quaintness of the earlier monuments, and the antique beauty of some of them, are what chiefly gives them value. Nevertheless, Addison is buried among the men of rank, not on the plea of his literary fame, however, but because he was connected with nobility by marriage, and has been a secretary of state. His gravestone is inscribed with a resounding verse from Tickle's lines to his memory, the only lines by which Tickle himself is now remembered, and which, as I discovered a little while ago, he mainly filched from an obscure versifier of somewhat earlier date. Returning to Poet's Corner, I look again at the walls, and wondered how the requisite hospitality can be shown to poets of our own and the succeeding ages. There is hardly a foot of space left, although room has lately been found for a bust of Southey and a full-length statue of Campbell. At best, only a little portion of the abbey is dedicated to poets, literary men, musical composers, and others of the gentle artist breed, and even into that small nook of sanctity men of other pursuits have thought it decent to intrude themselves. Methinks the tuneful throng, being at home here, should recollect how they were treated in their lifetime, and turn the cold shoulder, looking askance at nobles and official personages, however worthy of honorable intercourse elsewhere. Yet it shows aptly and truly enough what portion of the world's regard and honor has heretofore been awarded to literary eminence in comparison with other modes of greatness, this dimly lighted corner, nor even that quietly to themselves, in that vast minster, the walls of which are sheathed and hidden under marble, that has been wasted upon the illustrious obscure. Nevertheless, it may not be worth while to quarrel with the world on this account, for, to confess the very truth, their own little nook contains more than one poet whose memory is kept alive by his monument, instead of imbuing the senseless stone with a spiritual immortality, men of whom you do not ask, Where is he? But, Why is he here? I estimate that all the literary people who really make an essential part of one's inner life, including the period since English literature first existed, might have ample elbow-room to sit down and quaff their draughts of Castile round Chaucer's broad, horizontal tombstone. These divinest poets consecrate the spot, and throw a reflected glory over the humblest of their companions. And as for the latter, it is to be hoped that they may have long outgrown the characteristic jealousies and morbid sensibilities of their craft, and have found out the little value, probably not amounting to sixpence in immortal currency, of the posthumous renown which they once aspired to win. It would be a poor compliment to a dead poet to fancy him leaning out of the sky and snuffing up the impure breath of earthly praise. Yet we cannot easily rid ourselves of the notion that those who have bequeathed us the inheritance of an undying song 
would fain be conscious of its endless reverberations in the hearts of mankind, and would delight, among sublimer enjoyments, to see their names emblazoned in such a treasure-place of great memories as Westminster Abbey. There are some men, at all events, true and tender poets, moreover, and fully deserving of the honour, whose spirits, I feel certain, would linger a little while about Poets' Corner for the sake of witnessing their own apotheosis among their kindred. They have had a strong natural yearning, not so much for applause as sympathy, which the cold fortune of their lifetime did but scantily supply, so that this unsatisfied appetite may make itself felt upon sensibilities at once so delicate and retentive, even a step or two beyond the grave. Lee Hunt, for example, would be pleased even now, if he could learn that his bust had been reposited in the midst of the old poets whom he admired and loved, though there is hardly a man among the authors of to-day and yesterday whom the judgment of Englishmen would be less likely to place there. He deserves it, however, if not for his verse, the value of which I do not estimate, never having been able to read it, yet for his delightful prose, his unmeasured poetry, the inscrutable happiness of his touch, working soft miracles by a life-process like the growth of grass and flowers. As with all such gentle writers, his page sometimes betrayed a vestige of affectation, but the next moment a rich natural luxuriance overgrew and buried it out of sight. I knew him a little, and, since heaven be praised, few English celebrities whom I chanced to meet have enfranchised my pen by their decease, and as I assume no liberties with living men, I will conclude this rambling article by sketching my first interview with Lee Hunt. He was then at Hammersmith, occupying a very plain and shabby little house, in a contiguous range of others like it, with no prospect but that of an ugly village street and certainly nothing to gratify his craving for a tasteful environment inside or out. A slatternly maid-servant opened the door for us, and he himself stood in the entry, a beautiful and venerable old man, buttoned to the chin in a black dress-coat, tall and slender, with a countenance quietly alive all over, and the gentlest and most naturally courteous manner. He ushered us into his little study, or parlour, or both, a very forlorn room, with poor paper hangings and carpet, few books, no pictures that I remember, and an awful lack of upholstery. I touch distinctly upon these external blemishes, and this nudity of adornment, not that they would be worth mentioning in a sketch of other remarkable persons, but because Lee Hunt was born with such a faculty of enjoying all beautiful things, that it seemed as if fortune did him as much wrong in not supplying them as in withholding a sufficiency of vital breath from ordinary men. All kinds of mild magnificence, tempered by his taste, would have become him well, but he had not the grim dignity that assumes nakedness as the better robe. I have said that he was a beautiful old man. In truth I never saw a finer countenance either as to the mould of features or the expression, nor any that showed the play of feeling so perfectly without the slightest theatrical emphasis. 
it was like a child's face in this respect. At my first glimpse of him, when he met us in the entry, I discerned that he was old, his long hair being white and his wrinkles many. It was an aged visage, in short, such as I had not all expected to see, in spite of dates, because his books talked to the reader with a tender vivacity of youth. But when he began to speak, and as he grew more earnest in conversation, I ceased to be sensible of his age. Sometimes, indeed, its dusky shadow darkened through the gleam which his sprightly thoughts diffused about his face. But then another flash of youth came out of his eyes and made an illumination again. I never witnessed such a wonderfully elusive transformation before or since, and to this day, trusting only to my recollection, I should find it difficult to decide which was his genuine and stable predicament, youth or age. I have met no Englishman whose manners seem to me so agreeable, soft rather than polished, wholly unconventional, the natural growth of a kindly and sensitive disposition without any reference to rule, or else obedient to some rule so subtle that the nicest observer could not detect the application of it. His eyes were dark and very fine, and his delightful voice accompanied their visible language like music. He appeared to be exceedingly appreciative of whatever was passing among those who surrounded him, and especially of the vicissitudes in the consciousness of the person to whom he happened to be addressing himself at the moment. I felt that no effect upon my mind of what he uttered, no emotion, however transitory in myself, escaped his notice, though not from any positive vigilance on his part, but because his faculty of observation was so penetrative and delicate, and, to say the truth, it a little confused me to discern always a ripple on his mobile face, responsive to any slightest breeze that passed over the inner reservoir of my sentiments, and seemed thence to extend to a similar reservoir within himself. On matters of feeling, and within a certain depth, you might spare yourself the trouble of utterance, because he already knew what you wanted to say, and perhaps a little more than you would have spoken. His figure was full of gentle movement, though somehow without disturbing its quietude, and as he talked he kept folding his hands nervously, and betokened in many ways a fine and immediate sensibility, quick to feel pleasure or pain, though scarcely capable, I should imagine, of a passionate experience in either direction. There was not an English trait in him from head to foot, morally, intellectually, or physically, Beef, ale, or stout, brandy, or port wine, entered not at all into his composition. In his earlier life he appears to have given evidences of courage and sturdy principle, and of a tendency to fling himself into the rough struggle of humanity on the liberal side. It would be taking too much upon myself to affirm that this was merely a projection of his fancy world into the actual, that he never could have hit a downright blow and was altogether an unsuitable person to receive one. I beheld him not in his armor, but in his peacefulest robes. Nevertheless, drawing my conclusion merely from what I saw, it would have occurred to me that his main deficiency was a lack of grit. 
though anything but a timid man the combative and defensive elements were not prominently developed in his character and could have been made available only when he put an unnatural force upon his instincts it was on this account and also because of the fineness of his nature generally that the english appreciated him no better and left this sweet and delicate poet poor and with scanty laurels in his declining age it was not i think from his american blood that lee hunt derived either his amiability or his peaceful inclinations at least i do not see how we can reasonably claim the former quality as a national characteristic though the latter might have been fairly inherited from his ancestors on the mother's side who were pennsylvania quakers but the kind of excellence that distinguished him his fineness subtlety and grace was that which the richest cultivation has heretofore tended to develop in the happier examples of american genius and which though i say it a little reluctantly is perhaps what our future intellectual advancement may make general among us his person at all events was thoroughly american and of the best type as were likewise his manners for we are the best as well as the worst-mannered people in the world lee hunt loved dearly to be praised that is to say he desired sympathy as a flower seeks sunshine and perhaps profited by it as much in the richer depth of coloring that it imparted to his ideas in response to all that we ventured to express about his writings and for my part i went quite to the extent of my conscience which was a long way and there left the matter to a lady and a young girl who happily were with me his face shone and he manifested great delight with a perfect and yet delicate frankness for which i loved him he could not tell us he said the happiness that such appreciation gave him it always took him by surprise he remarked for perhaps because he cleaned his own boots and performed other little ordinary offices for himself he never had been conscious of anything wonderful in his own person and then he smiled making himself and all the poor little parlor about him beautiful thereby it is usually the hardest thing in the world to praise a man to his face but lee hunt received the incense with such gracious satisfaction feeling it to be sympathy not vulgar praise that the only difficulty was to keep the enthusiasm of the moment within the limit of permanent opinion a storm had suddenly come up while we were talking the rain poured the lightning flashed and the thunder broke but i hope and have great pleasure in believing that it was a sunny hour for lee hunt nevertheless it was not to my voice that he most favorably inclined his ear but to those of my companions women are the fit ministers at such a shrine he must have suffered keenly in his lifetime and enjoyed keenly keeping his emotions so much upon the surface as he seemed to do and convenient for everybody to play upon being of a cheerful temperament happiness had probably the upper hand his was a light mildly joyous nature gentle graceful yet seldom attaining to that deepest grace which results from power for beauty like a woman its human representative dallies with the gentle but yields its consummate favor only to the strong i imagine that lee hunt may have been more beautiful when i met him 
both in person and character than his earlier days. As a young man I could conceive of his being finical in certain moods, but not now, when the gravity of age shed a venerable grace about him. I rejoiced to hear him say that he was favored with most confident and cheering anticipations in respect to a future life, and there were abundant proofs throughout our interview of an unrepining spirit, resignation, quiet relinquishment of the worldly benefits that were denied him, thankful enjoyment of whatever he had to enjoy, and piety, and hope shining onward into the dusk, all of which gave a reverential cast to the feeling with which we parted from him. I wish that he could have had one full draught of prosperity before he died. As a matter of artistic propriety, it would have been delightful to see him inhabiting a beautiful house of his own, in an Italian climate, with all sorts of elaborate upholstery and minute elegances about him, and a succession of tender and lovely women to praise his sweet poetry from morning to night. I hardly know whether it is my fault, or the effect of a weakness in Lee Hunt's character, that I should be sensible of a regret of this nature, when, at the same time, I sincerely believe that he has found an infinity of better things in the world whither he has gone. At our leave-taking he grasped me warmly by both hands, and seemed as much interested in our whole party as if he had known us for years. All this was genuine feeling, a quick luxuriant growth out of his heart, which was a soil for flower-seeds of rich and rare varieties, not acorns, but a true heart nevertheless. Several years afterwards I met him for the last time at a London dinner-party, looking sadly broken down by infirmities, and my final recollection of the beautiful old man presents him arm in arm with, nay, if I mistake not, partly embraced and supported by, another beloved and honoured poet, whose minstrel name, since he has a weekday for one of his personal occasions, I will venture to speak. It was Barry Cornwall, whose kind introduction had first made me known to Lee Hunt. End of section 19